Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Welcome to the Chris Hedges Report, a licentious, money-drenched, morally bankrupt, and intellectually vacuous ruling class, accountable to no one, and free to plunder and prey on the weak like human vultures, rise to power in societies in terminal decline, where the rule of law has collapsed and desperate human beings have been reduced to commodities. This class of parasites was savagely parodied in the first century satirical novel Satyricon by Gaius Petronius, written during the reign of Nero, when Rome's republican values were abandoned for unbridled greed, hedonism, and narcissism. Jeffrey Epstein and his cohorts, drawn from the ruling political, academic, and financial elites for years, engaged in sexual perversions and exploitation of Patronian proportions. Sex, as in the late Roman Empire, has been transformed in the twilight of the American Empire from a private act of intimacy to one of public entertainment. Sex tapes, internet porn, sexting, hookup apps combine to give anyone a platform for their sexual exploits as well as sexual preferences. Eurydice, in her book Satyricon USA, A Journey Across the New Sexual Frontier, set out to look with remarkable understanding and empathy at the sexual landscape of the United States, spending time with cross-dressers, BDSM practitioners, celibate, Catholic priests, and even necrophiliacs. Her portrait of America is one that, carried out below the radar, exposes a nation desperately seeking catharsis and, as she writes, a need for continuity and safety and uniformity and love. Joining me to discuss her book, Satyricon USA, A Journey Across the New Sexual Frontier, is Eurydice. So I want to begin, Eurydice, by this article that uh, appeared uh, recently in the New York Times. Uh, and they say that nearly half of American adults and a majority of women say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the past 10 years. According to the Pew Research Center, fully half of single adults have given up on looking for a relationship or dating at all. Rates of sexual activity, partnership, and marriage have reached a 30-year low with young adults leading the retreat. I think that's something that you uh, foresaw within your book, and I wondered if you could speak about that. Yes, thanks for having me. Um, What I saw in my book, when I began the research, I was looking to celebrate the way that we had begun to politicize our sexual bodies, right, and free them from the repression of the enforced separation of body and mind, uh, during which the mind was in charge of the body, or body and soul, you know, during the years of religion and the years of, like, strict patriarchy. So we had finally separated sex from procreation, you know, between the 1970s and the 1990s, with, like, birth control, IVF, chip paternity tests, and I felt this was the first time in human history that our sexual relations, our our mating, was undergoing such a fundamental change that 
like in the future it would we could see how it had affected our evolution so so from an evolutionary point of view and and, and a you know sociopolitical and anthropological point of view i was very interested in the way that our sexuality had just kind of exploded on the public sphere um you know the personal is political um and also i was i was and i entered it i was entering it as an ardent feminist um so i felt that it was overall a positive thing when i went out to speak to people and i spent about um four four years continuously traveling, embedding myself in different communities. Um, and I found only contradictions. I found I was wrong in my assumptions. I found that there was a lot of repression still going on. I found that there was an, a, an extreme kind of um, decline in, 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 in ethics, which was the result of this separation from our bodies. So the, the scientific revolution had further like distanced us from our nature and, and made us beholden completely to our culture and, you know, the laws and the words, new words, new laws that constantly changed in reproductive matters. Um, so what you're describing as uh, the norm now, which is an overall loneliness and, and sense of, of you know, despair and kind of like, you know, understanding love, uh, becoming one with each other, trusting each other, um, is, is a result of that fragmentation, which I think created a new stage in our society, which is like a, a post-patriarchy, like a, a meta, a meta culture. Right. And what you named, you know, with uh, Jeffrey Epstein is, again, you know, very much a result of that sense of um, women are empowered by objectifying their own body. Right. So that creates such a vast distance from oneself. You know, uh, there is no way to reunite with ourselves and, and find our own truth. So we're always looking for that truth outside. Um, and, and we are not listening to our body, which is what we are. You know. One of the things that I found fascinating about your book is how you uh, would go into these subcultures. Let, let's talk about cross-dressers and actually find the patriarchy and the uh, kind of objectification of women reinforced. For instance, you uh, are at Provincetown, Massachusetts at something called uh, Fantasia Fair. They have 80 seminars, talent and fashion shows. This is during a week of cross-dressing in public. And you say that it's mostly attended by middle-aged heterosexual men who stand to lose a lot of social power if they're discovered. Uh, they come to this out-of-the-way town to find relief from the requirements of workaholic masculinity and feel fortified in their numbers their femme persona lets them forget their banes and bodily aches and chills of mortal reckoning. They are like tootsie-clad promise keepers, a semi-religious gathering of men weary of their inability to touch and be touched, looking for unconditional fraternity, respect, and love. And yet you talk about how they're uh, – when they dress, it's very matronly. I just thought that was really interesting. Can you explain that? Yeah, I felt that the the repression 
was exacerbated in all of these like newly freed sexual expressions. So the crossdressers, for example, um, who had already begun um, hormonal changes. So most of them were already on hormones and they had these like gorgeous brand new breasts, but they were like, you know, middle-aged judges. So it was very incongruous to, to look at. And it was a, a kind of embodied example of how strange our, our medical uh, interventions, you know, cosmetic interventions actually are. Um, uh, Anyway, that's a, a side note. Um, they they took on personas that were very conservative. The way that Jadeline Jenner, I guess, is very conservative. Um, you know, she just spoke against um, the the trans uh, athlete, you know, uh, swimmer who, who won all these uh, all these uh, swims. So th- that's that's what I mean. They they had. Uh, most of them stayed with their wives and just wanted to feel for themselves in a kind of narcissistic, uh, you know, hunger that, um, you know, adoration that we give to the, to the female. Now, you know, the desire for the female and the adoration for the female is very natural. You know, nature makes, you know, the female like uh, attractive and irresistible for for reasons of procreation, right? Um, but we have completely like pushed nature out of the way. So we live in overculture. It's like only culture. And so our understanding of like feminine beauty or feminine attraction uh, is something that we think we can replicate with medicine and chemistry and our fancy scientific tricks. Yeah. Um, uh, and we, you know, we want to experience everything. To me, that's hubris. Um, and, and and yes, it doesn't change the conditions of oppression, whether it's economical, you know, oppression, because these uh, a, a, these perks are mostly uh, the privilege of the rich. Uh, you know, it costs money to to do all these cosmetic changes, um, and uh, and stay artificially, uh, you know, permanently, let's say, youthful. <laughs> um, but also in, in terms of like uh, the oppression of the, the people giving birth by the people who don't give birth, let's call it. This. We're post-gender now, uh, but that hasn't changed the basic terms of patriarchy, right? So, um, yeah, their wives were obedient and followed them around and, you know, basically, uh, you know, g- I don't know, gave them prostrate massages by another name. Um, and I, I don't think that we have found um, wisdom in this. And I don't think we have found progress. Um, all, of my, all, all of my research made me question the way that we were presenting this um, revolution in sexual freedoms, um, and it, to me, it felt like a resurgence of the Puritan, the Puritanism, um, and the, the the kind of like control, you know, of the individual by the state. Well, it's interesting when yeah. you you're in the room and you're looking at all these cross dressers, uh, and and you you said they reminded you of 
Hasidim wives, long skirts, wigs, scarves, gold earrings, big glasses, <laughs> a heaviness of bearing. Uh, they sit with hands clasped demurely on their laps, chins up, respectable, placid, keen, brittle, and purposefully messianic like unerotic mother figures. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about – you also say you, uh, you're, you of course, schooled in the classics, uh, as I know, uh, but you talk about Freud – interpreted Oedipus's self-blinding as an act of self-castration. And you write, in a way, cross-dressers are both castrati and visionaries. What do you mean by that? Um, well, the, the castration is the castration of, of, uh, you know, of the old male. So my understanding of the you know, Oedipus castration is uh, ancient. But I'm talking about it from like a when, when I was talking about the crossdressers. It's not in the ancient religious sense where the old king has to you know self castrate. He marries the mother and then he has to you know that's how nature gets reborn. Um, the the way that it's it was done in that uh, in that community it was it was very much uh, the the optics. Right, the performing aspect of it. So a castration of their perceived machismo, because they took on the, the aspects of, let's say, cliche femininity, um, and visionaries in, in the sense of uh, becoming post-gender, uh, what, you know, or, or you know, poly, polygender. Um, we call it now non-binary, right? So... Uh, I also mentioned Tiresias, I think, you know, the seer, the ancient Greek seer, who had been both a man and a woman, and thus was considered the wisest of, of prophets in ancient, in ancient mythology and in, in ancient Greece. Um, but the difference is there was no intervention from the ego, right? There was no going to the medical establishment and paying a fee and asking for a for a cosmetic, uh, you know, update. So w w what you described, you know, in that passage is still what I see when I look at, let's say, Madonna, <laughs> who may think she looks hot and young, but she doesn't to me. Um, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the celebrities and everyday people I know and meet, I live in Miami Beach, so, the, you know, enhanced enhanced appearances are the vast majority <laughs> around me. Um, and I don't think I am alone in feeling deep down that it just doesn't look beautiful. It doesn't look aesthetically pleasing. It looks um, off-putting and odd and um, destabilizing. So there is definitely a difference between the, the beauty or the appearance that nature bestows that we do not have the right to say, this is me, I am beautiful. It's really, you know, nature. <laughs> it's a gift from nature. Uh, and then the beauty that the pharmaceutical, you know, industry bestows, which is very much something that we have done. And... Um, I think doesn't quite look so convincing. Well, what's interesting, I'm just going to just one more thing on cross-dressers. 
is that uh, this journey is incredibly expensive. You're at a downstairs boutique that sells fake breasts for $700 each, um, and the owner tells you that he FedExes these things, quote, to the White House, the Supreme Court, and the Pentagon. I find out I know artists who work part-time in salons like alter image dressing clients for $150 a session at lunch hour. The average customer, they tell me, is 55 uh, five feet, 11 in- inches, 190 pounds, and married. He arrives in a suit, asked to be made into, I'm quoting, a whore, prom date, stripper. The richest men want to be maids. So that's kind of interesting. Some clients also attend uh, New York City's finishing school for boys who want to be girls, offers classes up to $2,500, uh, and uh, assigns homework such as creating your her story. Um, let's go on to the, the, this, the vault. Maybe you can explain what that is. Yeah. Well, both of these, uh, two, you know, different like sub communities were very expensive. (laughs) It was equally expensive to go buy the equipment for, uh, BDSM, which is what, you know, took place in the vault. Uh, the vault was a, a public space where you could engage in uh, in BDSM, uh, sexual play. Uh, and then from there, you could meet people and go to private parties, which I also attended. And the ones I went to were in the private homes of really wealthy couples who had dungeons in their homes, you know, locked away from the children. Um, and again, the just the equipment, the quality of, of the leather, uh, the, the uh, differences in the types of whips, uh, clothing, you know, underwear, uh, headgear, uh, cost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, you know, the saddles and the, I mean, it, it's just an extremely expensive hobby. So I do think that it is related to the amount of wealth. A person has, and and it's yet another form of displaying that wealth, of enjoying that wealth. What you know? What can I do that poorer people can't? Right? Which is how from there we get to like the mega yachts and uh, Epstein with all his uh, you know virgins. Uh, it's just a, a short leap, basically. Um, the the exchange of 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 pain. As, as pleasure, um, which is interesting conceptually, in practice for me, again, became another experience of objectification of the body and kind of like punishing the body. So even though conceptually, the idea that, uh, you know, my mind can can tell me this pain is actually pleasure and, and, and I can understand that and, and feel that is fascinating. Um, in practice, watching it happen again and again, it just felt demeaning. Uh, it, it, it reminded me of the of the Christian rituals of self-flagellation a lot, uh, but without the spiritual angle, you know. So a lot of our uh, sexual, you know, our new sexual, uh, let's say, them practices, you know, fetishes, uh, identities are, are, are things that we have done in the past but now God's gone. <laughs> well, you, you liken it. You so, liken it to the, you liken flesh. it to the penitential scourging in the 14th century. Why? Right. 
because <laughs> um, it felt that it was the same um, quest by our, our, you know, our culture, which is at war with nature, uh, to, to confirm that the desires of the body, which are natural, can be controlled by the desires and, and the rules of the mind, which is controlled by the culture. You know, um, something that I didn't really discuss much in the book, which I feel very strongly about because it's, you know, some, some time has passed, is that this, this way of thinking about humanity and civilization has been at odds with nature and being created in order to, like, uh, take, you know, control our, our existence within nature, uh, has brought us to this moment of climate crisis. And this crisis can only be addressed by kind of finding uh, our place back in nature, of some kind of rebalancing between our culture and our nature, right? So the more we, we distance ourselves from our body, we also distance ourselves from the nature in which we belong and which in the end will outlive us, right? And nature, you know, is, culture becomes, culture is man-made. Um, we can update it if, if we want. Um, and if we don't update it, I think soon, uh, we may self-suicide. I want to talk about cutters. You spend time with cutters. Uh, you write, middle-class America motivates the non-sexual bloodletting that is now prevalent among teens and was the starting point for many sexual cutters. Talk about that community and what you found. Um, again, you know, it's this idea of um, of turning around the meaning of things, you know, of reclaiming a, a signifier, a, a meaning, uh, as a source of finding liberation. I not sure it is liberatory. Um, I, I think it kind of you know, keeps us going in circles within the same overall constraints. So, you know, the cutters uh, often are teenagers who feel that they cannot, you know, belong, that they're not at ease with their bodies, their bodies are changing so fast, they're not in control of that change, they don't know who they become, they feel the world looking at them differently, uh, there is just too much stimulation, the body grows way faster than the mind, you know, your prefrontal lobes until grows until you're 26, you know, your body's done, like often at 16, uh, you know, the, that's like a, a, a discrepancy right there. So cutting is a way of trying to slow down uh, all that uh, thinking, all that feeling, all that, you know, panic uh, about the changes that are happening within, especially in teenagers, but sometimes it lasts much longer. Uh, you know, the pain um, slows down the mind. Um, and that's really uh, how that works. It's very simple. It's like when sometimes, you know, when we overdo things, uh, our, our body gets sick and it's just a way to stop us from, you know, hitting rock bottom, right? So that's how, you know, cutting really functions uh, and, you know, it becomes addictive. Um, so the, the, the women, especially the lesbian women that I met, whom I met, um, had reclaimed that past, their adolescent past, as cutters, 
by engaging in cutting uh, their lovers is a form of like orgasmic, ecstatic, um, you know, expression of like ultimate union and and, and uh, that's a um, and and there is an aspect there of like the you know the the, the blood brothers you know joining blood um, it's kind of like an ultimate taboo right letting of the, letting the blood out uh, of the body um, and again conceptually um, and. It, it's interesting. It feels like it's breaking a, a barrier and overcoming a taboo. Uh, but from the greater picture, in my eyes, it again repeats this trope of let's you know punish the body for the sins of the mind, for the sins of our our cultural you know point of view, basically. So it's almost like we become slave drivers of ourselves, you know, in the process. You, you, you write punishing that, ourselves. I want to ask about your chapter, The Economy of Desire. You write about strip clubs. You're in Dallas, Texas. Uh, can you uh, describe what you found there? Yeah. Um, it was the biggest strip club in the country at the time. So what overwhelmed me was the number of naked women I've, yeah, available to the to the visitor to anyone who might walk in for the price of the drink, and to me it felt like a vast bazaar of of uh, of brides, let's say, but not to be married, to just be you know had uh, briefly. Um, so the the emphasis on consumption rather than commitment, and the emphasis on money becoming the attraction of the male instead of might. So like in old patriarchy, might was right. In new patriarchy, money was might. Money was right. Um, and the men would come and literally put the dollars on the female body and have access to it in some way or another for a period of time. So that commercialization of like intimacy or the appearance of intimacy and the way that the female, you know, a, attractive body was objectified to, 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 to a point of like, you know, enslavement. Um, w was difficult for me to, to perceive, even though I was a feminist and I knew that I was supposed to understand it as female empowerment and as, you know, these women's like uh, way of making a decent living. And I found a similar thing with sex addiction, which I also looked at extensively. And it was, you know, very much an experience of money as well. Uh, the, the sex addict could pay uh, for, you know, whether it was like uh, you know, sex or, or strippers or uh, affairs or serial wives or, you know, whatever it was. So it became a, 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 his masculinity, his, you know, his like phallic empowerment was again associated with his monetary prowess. So you write that the social service strip clubs perform is not primarily sexual. What do you mean by that? That it's a psychological empowerment for the men um, and that it is a reassurance of the working man that what he's doing, kind of like staying in the machine, uh, has perks that it's worth doing because he gets to go here after work. But, but you also say that it, you call it the little man's revenge. 
It alleviates his stress of being controlled by constricting institutions, politics, technologies, mores. It enables him to feel part of the controlling elite. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's a fallacy with a pH. I, I want to close with you. You talk a lot about the church and celibacy. Uh, and just I want to close the show with those reflections. Um, well, I was shocked. That was the most shocking of all of my experiences when I got to speak to a Monsignor who was uh, very open about his uh, sexual experiences uh, with boys and that of other uh, priests. And so, I, you know, it was again that dichotomy between the performative and the, and the real. Um, and I, it was not lost on me that the Catholic Church enforced celibacy uh, for reasons of inheritance so that the priests could not bequeath the church lands to their children and all of the uh, lands that were donated to the church would stay within Vatican's power, right? So it it was about money and power. It was not for a spiritual reason. And with the passage of so many years, this institutionalization of celibacy showed itself for, you know, a, a distortion of human natural uh, way of being. So the, the sexual uh, expression of the priests was rarely changed. Uh, what was changed was the the format, right? The the vessel, the shape uh, that it was practiced in. And uh, our relationship to sin, you know, like something that started with St. Augustine, basically, continues unchanged. And I think that is unfortunate uh, because uh, we have not found a way to reconcile ourselves to our nature. And we live in a time of great civilizational decline as a result. Well, you, 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 call it, you, you, you call it moral schizophrenia. You're talking about Paul, the cycle of self-loathing. And, of course, all these theologians have posited that Paul was gay. That's where the self-loathing came from, is based on the assumption that casual sex involves a loss of self-control akin to a loss of selfhood. But feeling out of control is not being out of control. Our genes want us to experience desire as a translate sexual powerlessness Resisting it is hubris, um, right? Yes. So I'm on the I'm on the side of nature in this one. <laughs> I think the more we fight our nature, the more we become diseased. And here we are, you know, after uh, two years of COVID, and it's not a coincidence that so many people, especially in the natural community, were uh, you know extremely mistrustful of the vaccines. This is where it has brought us. Is this characteristic of all late empires? I mean, uh, certainly uh, you draw from Satyricon, but it, it, isn't it true at the end of the, uh, you know, Athenian the, Empire. the Athenian, the French, the Ottoman? French, yes, yes. I think that the moral and sexual, you know, disillusion and excess is the sign of, of a time of the end of empire, you know, where chaos is the, the only form that anything takes, basically. And no one knows what is true. And no one knows how to find peace uh, and communion, you know, communion, community. Um, so out of this type of 
of, uh, let's say, turning a new genesis will, will happen. And those are the cycles of civilization. Great. That was Eurydice, author of Satyricon USA. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com.